Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. Big changes are on the horizon, but we can't quite make them out in detail. The identity of the next Speaker of the House, the third official in line for the presidency, remains in doubt, as a group of five hard-right Republican members of Congress has announced its lockstep opposition to the current nominee and only clear contender, Kevin McCarthy. From their proclamations, there seems nothing McCarthy can do to peel off the one or two votes he may need. Yet in Washington, there's generally a price. What is clear is that whoever becomes speaker will have an unruly and belligerent caucus to lead with next to no margin for error. In the meantime, the outgoing Democratic majority has a few weeks left in the lame duck session, which already has seen passage into law of the Protect Marriage Act. The Dems have a wish list of some half a dozen items, including with the stratagem of folding them into an omnibus budget bill they aim to pass later this week, but find themselves overall limited by time and votes. The January 6th committee is poised to hold its final public hearing and release its long-awaited report, which likely will exceed 1,000 pages. The committee's biggest remaining decisions are whom to refer to the DOJ for prosecution, what charges to refer them for, and whom to try to hold accountable through other avenues such as bar associations. It seems certain that whoever else may be singled out Trump is soon to be the first president the Congress has ever referred for criminal prosecution. And, as he already is in the firm investigative clutches of DOJ Special Counsel Jack Smith and Fulton County DA Fannie Willis, among others, his prospects for a happy new year decline by the day. To peek around the corner into 2023 and its likely points of political tension and legal conflict, we welcome a stellar group of experts experienced in the ways of Washington, D.C. And they are Norm Eisen, a senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institute and the founder and chair of the state's United Democracy Center. He served as special counsel to the House Judiciary Committee from 2019 to 2020, including for the first impeachment of President Trump. He served as U.S. Ambassador to the Czech Republic from 2011 to 2014 and wrote a really excellent book about it, I might add, if you're looking for a stocking stuffer, and worked in the White House as Special Counsel and Special Assistant to the President for Ethics and Government Reform from 2009 to 2011. He is the author of three books, most recently A Case for the American People, United States versus Donald J. Trump and is a legal analyst for CNN and a regular good friend of the podcast. Norm, as always, thanks for joining. Thanks, Harry. Nice to be back with you. And a first-time guest we've been trying to lure for months. I hope it's not our last. Ali Vitali, the NBC News congressional correspondent. She's covered every major election from the campaign trail since 2016, including the most recent 2022 midterms. Her first book, Electable, Why America Hasn't Put a Woman in the White House Yet, came out earlier this year. When's it going to be in paperback? Is there a schedule on that? 
No schedule on that, but next year, we think. Okay, great. Well, congrats on reaching that milestone. I think I'll, I'm you. not sure I will ever make. <laughs> and welcome to Talking Fit. Thank you. So excited to be here for my debut. <laughs> <laughs> and that's right, because another regular and friend of the show joins us, Congress member Mary Gay Scanlon, who was just recently reelected to her position representing Pennsylvania's 5th Congressional District. Congratulations, Congresswoman. Thank you. She currently serves on, among others, the House Judiciary Committee, which might have a little bit of action in the coming year. And she chairs the House Caucuses on Access to Legal Aid and Youth Mentoring. Prior to her election in 2018, she was the National Pro Bono Counsel at Ballard Spa for 15 years. And she also served as an attorney at the Education Law Center, president of her local school board and co-chair of the Voting Rights Task Force of the Association of Pro Bono Counsel. Welcome back, Congresswoman Scanlon. Thank you. Good to see you. All right. Let's start with your house. In the house, there's ferocious jockeying still for the Speaker of the House. So all eyes are focused on Kevin McCarthy, who before the R's surprisingly narrow victory seemed likely to coast into the job, which he has coveted for many years. So let's start here. Notwithstanding support from, among others, Donald Trump, Marjorie Taylor Greene, there is this so-called group of five of arch-right-wing representatives who are vowing to oppose him implacably no matter what, which would leave him one vote short. Is the opposition really entrenched and will never change, or is it just a negotiating tactic to try to shake loose some more concessions for the far right? Any thoughts? We're not in that crowd very much. <laughs> Same here. Not in that crowd yeah. very much. Probably both. I mean, we have in that coalition of five some members who are very different in terms of their approach to things. I mean, if you want to talk about people who are implacable, Chip Roy and the way he goes to the floor most days to object to what should be suspension votes <laughs> just to gum things up. Certainly forcing the speaker decision to be delayed is a way to gum things up. And so far it's working because everything flows from there. We can't get our committees organized. Can't even have a swearing in until the speaker is right, is chosen. Right. So on the other hand, there are some concrete things that they're trying to achieve. And if McCarthy folds, then maybe some of them happen. And the most radical demand seems to be this idea of a snap vote to get rid of the speaker at any time. Quite a concession to make if you're becoming speaker. Love it. But <laughs> what other end game might they have besides the so-called snap vote? And is that, in fact, something they really plausibly are hoping for? Yeah, look, the motion to vacate or the snap vote is one of the key things that we know that people who are negotiating with McCarthy would like to get. Every McCarthy ally that you talk to, though, is very clear that that's not a concession that they want him to make. And as I've been covering this, it's been really fascinating to watch how McCarthy went from being someone who would stand in front of us in Congress and say he was going to have a 40 or 50 seat majority. He's now dealing with four or five. I mean, to watch the way that Nancy Pelosi has had to juggle all the different parts of her caucus, and she is masterful at this. 
McCarthy now, with less years of practice, will have to do an even tighter balancing act. And you've got to imagine that Pelosi staying in the halls of Congress, being able to still have a front row seat to this, is going to bring a little bit of glee to an otherwise yeah. sad caucus. I'm sorry, Congresswoman, who's now going to be in the minority. But at the same time for McCarthy, all these concessions that might seem really small on how conferences are run, how committees are put together, this could all end up having really big implications because it gives all of his individual members the power to be the House version of a Joe Manchin. And we know what that looks like. And the other thing I think I would add, too, is like when you think about the group of five who are the hard, no, never Kevins, like Bob Good and Matt Gates have a different operating mindset mm -hmm. than like Chip Roy. Chip Roy is in this on like the principles of how the house functions. Gates and Good are in this for entirely different reasons. And in the Gates sense, a lot of it is like also just the agitating of it that he really enjoys, too. Besides that, what are his reasons? What else does Gates care about? I have a strong view on him. No. From many a green room conversation. And as the Congresswoman knows well, uh, he was a uh, active irritant on the House Judiciary Committee when I was counsel for the impeachment and working with the Congresswoman. What Gates wants is the maximum he can get for Gates. Mm -hmm. He's all about Matt Gates. So whatever, whatever the pie is that is in front of him at any given moment, he wants the largest slice of that pie for himself. He's the ultimate uh, snake oil salesman. Consequences be damned. R right down to the spectator's shoes. He expresses his character for everyone to see. So he's got a Matt Gates play uh, here and really no regard for principle. Probably what that means is he wants as much sway as possible for the election denial MAGA faction that has taken over now. A majority of a majority of the House of Representatives yeah. is going to be a part of the cult. And Gates and MTG... One of them is playing the inside game with McCarthy and Gates is playing the outside game. Yeah. That's what it's about. It's a power grab, power grab for team crazy. Hey, speaking of the inside game, I'll bite on this. Just curious. And I think the listeners might be too. So it's the middle of the impeachment. You're in the green room. Does he play like nice and tell you jokes and God forbid, show you pictures or is oh, he yes. in fact teeth bared? And oh, nasty. no. No, no, no. Meadows and Jordan are team nasty. Yeah. At least to me. I don't know, Mary Kay. You don't have to comment because you have to live with Jordan now as your likely chair. But Gates has always been nice, nice as possible to me. On the new rubric of hyperpartisanship, he's also been one who would cross the aisle on things. He was always good for a weed bill. Yeah. Whom does the stalemate hurt most. And as that drags along, where does the pressure get stronger? Well, after the headlines of the last couple of years, I am so enjoying the Republicans <laughs> in disarray headlines. <laughs> I mean, as we are moving very smoothly through our caucuses process, we had unanimous consent on the three leaders. Our committee assignments are getting sorted out very amicably. People of quality and intellect getting assigned to run committees and such, well, to be the uh, ranking members on committees. We're just seeing this disarray. 
on the Make other side. Day. And I mean, yeah. ultimately, it's bad for the country, but a little bit of karma. And Ali, so, you know, on the Joe Manchin point there, now there's some talk about a group trying to play uh, hardball back with the never Kevins. What sort of options or levers do the, you know, McCarthy crowd have to try to bring them to heel? Exactly what they're doing, continuing to try. It's not that they're trying to talk to the never Kevins. They're trying to talk to like the maybe possibly never Kevins with a little asterisk, which is like, if we get what we want, we would come over to the side. The people who are still squarely in the Freedom Caucus, who are like Chip Roy, who are in these conversations, meeting in the leader's office every day, trying to haggle through, you know, is it 72 hours that you need as a gap time between when a bill is introduced? That could mean working weekends. And I think all of us who cover the Hill or work on the Hill are like, hmm, interesting. Like, am I now working Saturdays all of a sudden? But like, those are like the substantial rules that certain people are actually pushing for during this period of time. The motion to vacate is the sexy one, obviously, because we all watched what it looked like when Boehner lived under threat of that from people like then Congressman Mark Meadows. And we know the insanity that ensued there when margins were much bigger. But here, watching with margins this small, I mean, that's why that's the sexy one. But then just in terms of the literal way that the House runs, those are the kinds of concessions that they're trying to get now. And that doesn't seem sexy. But what I say on MSNBC all the time is like, just because it's not sexy doesn't mean it's not going to have huge implications for the country, especially at a point where like, this is a conference where you're actively having the other side of the building in the Senate try to figure out like how much basic governing they have to do to keep the literal lights of the government on because they're not sure that the House Republican side of it is on board. And I think that's the prospect that's the most, you know, interesting and all encompassing if you zoom out a little bit is like, okay, are we just like all on board for running the government? Right. Like that's sort of up for debate a little bit right now, especially when I'm talking to my Republican sources on the Senate side. I think that's exactly right. I mean, the disarray and the extremism among the House Republicans, I don't think they can govern. They're already talking about all the things that they just want to investigate and shut down and and use as wedges. We're going to be depending on the Senate, which is a little bit daunting given how slowly the Mm. Senate moves. The world's most deliberative body. (laughs) But um, hey, how about Boehner uh, tearing up at the Pelosi portrait? Game recognized game. Yeah. I'll just say that you really saw old Washington. Yes. The Washington Harry that you and I grew up in. Harry and I got to D.C. around the same time and have been friends since the early 90s. And, you know, I've, I've had dinner with Boehner. I've had multiple bottles of red wine with him. And what you saw at that uh, portrait presentation, he's the identical way in real life, except when he talks about having to deal with the situation that Kevin McCarthy's about to deal with, with a lot more integrity, a lot more experience. You know, the difference between McCarthy and Pelosi is not just that Pelosi is good at it and experienced at it. She has tremendous steel. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the guy has a piece of overcooked fettuccine where his spine should be. He wasn't always that way. He came, he spent days with me when I was ambassador. We did work in Europe together. Uh, He used to be very, very good, but he's been corroded by the virus of Trumpism. It's eaten away. And she has one other thing, too, I would say, which is ideas, things she wants to 
get done and govern. Yeah, she has ideas. But what she has, Mary Gay can and Ali can both attest to this. She is one of the toughest people, maybe yeah. the oh, yeah. tough. I have never met a tougher person than Nancy Pelosi. As I wrote in my impeachment book, you know, the struggle, Mary Gay and I did this together every day for a year. The struggle right. to persuade her to impeach, tough. Right. She is a very, very tough person. McCarthy has none of that. And Boehner's tough, but you should hear him off the record. It's not that off the record now. He put it in his book. I was going to say, I regret the book. <laughs> did he use the cuss words in the book too? Oh, yeah. Rail against <laughs> those Freedom Caucus people. Mm -hmm. Oh, I've never heard anyone excoriate a group like he did. So I don't know if McCarthy's going to, I myself, I'm not sure he's going to make it. I think if these five hang tough, they claim they're going to hang together. He's not going to hold the House hostage for three months. At some point, they're going to have to come up with Scalise or somebody else. Yeah. Well, that's actually the thing I wonder I'm sorry, and yeah. I know that this is Harry's podcast, but I'm used to asking questions. But like, the no, thing no, 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 go wonder, take it over. I'm going for it because the thing I wonder about is like, if Scalise becomes this phantom consensus candidate, mm -hmm. where you're going alphabetically through the conference, and it becomes clear that McCarthy has lost more than the five that we assume are the Never Kevins right now. S is pretty far down the alphabet. What do you do if you're Stefanik Scalise? And Scalise is someone who, when you talk about the return of like committee in Washington, when Pelosi gave her farewell floor speech, McCarthy was not there, but Scalise was. Mm -hmm. And when you listen, and when I listen to people like Hakeem Jeffries, and I ask him, who can you work with on the Republican side? We know he has had no lost love for Kevin McCarthy and been very public and viral in moments about that. But with Steve Scalise, there is a little bit more of that return to the old Washington potential, I think. I don't know what you guys think about it, though. Well, I think that's been the interesting thing about this is no alternative candidate emerging, even in the face of, I think this week, the Kevin McCarthy supporters passed out lapel buttons saying, okay, meaning only Kevin, but it was kind of roundly mocked as meaning, okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> if we have to. <laughs> with that little enthusiasm, you know, are they just waiting for the first or second vote where he doesn't make it for sort of a coalition to emerge or... Look, I think for either of them, any of them, there is a careful what you wish for mm -hmm. part of this, although he, McCarthy, has wished so ardently for so long, <laughs> there's no getting around it. Let's close out just with this, if we could, Congresswoman. I don't think it's just because of the razor-sharp numbers of the two caucuses, but really the, the plan always was to you know run on immigration and inflation and govern on Hunter Biden's laptop. But as a member of the soon-to-be minority party and a member of the soon-to-be chair Jim Jordan's Judiciary Committee, realistically, is there anything you and your colleagues can do to counteract the more extreme forces that are going to hold sway however things work out? Or is it just a matter of, you know, sighing and letting things roll along for a couple of years? Well, I think there's a definite opportunity here to make sure that the American public knows uh -huh. that they are crazy. Uh -huh. That, you know, after campaigning on immigration and inflation and crime, the number one priority for the Republican House majority is investigating Hunter Biden's laptop. So. In some ways, you know, fine, expose your crazy. We're still going to be the grown-ups in the room. 
It's going to be two years of the Twitter files. If you enjoyed the Twitter files, that is what the House majority is going to do for two years. I think it'll take some discipline, but the cohesion matters. Compare the Republicans, compare the Jim Jordans who were screaming and, you know, having food fights and throwing everything against the wall. Mm -hmm. I think that the Dems, if they're smart, will be able to be just keeping it together, dignified, showing the contrast rather than uh, screaming it. Exactly. Easier said than done when some of the likes we were discussing are putting up, you know, lunacy. All right. Can we talk just a few minutes about the rest of the lame duck session? Less than two weeks away from surrendering power, the Dems have this long wish list of possible legislation. This is a naive question sort of for anybody. Why is it they don't just plow through it all and see what happens? Why is it sort of a, a given that they may get to one or two, maybe even three items, but the rest are left unaddressed? Yeah, that's the general vibe, right? Is yeah. In the House, you could just plow through the whole agenda item list and then let it sit in the Senate. Pelosi's at the end. Boom, boom, boom. Why not? Yeah, you could. I mean, look, I don't place our armchair psychiatrist to Speaker Pelosi, certainly. But I think one of the complicating factors, obviously, has just been how long it's taken for this government funding deal to come together and yeah. whether or not the Senate was even going to be able to do the things they needed to do. But when you even just look at the fact that typically you're doing a funding bill, you've got four corners and one of those four is just completely out, not wanting to be engaged or involved. And then you have, you know, two men in the Senate in Leahy and Shelby who see this not just as their jobs, but also longtime appropriators who this is their last one. It's a legacy moment in addition to just being the basic part of being an appropriations chairman. I think that's one of the factors, too, that has sort of gummed up this end of year process, because, again, if you can't keep the lights on, the rest of it doesn't really matter. And so this is the basic piece of it is like, how much money are we giving our military? Are we going to be able to get domestic items in there? There are certain things that they're talking about tucking into either this government funding package or the NDAA itself. Crypto could be one of them in a last minute thing. Obviously, there was that attempt that failed on mansion for permitting reform as sort of like a thank you. We kept our promise about the Inflation Reduction Act stuff. So all of that is in there. But yeah, I mean, that, that could be one theory is like, why don't you just plow through it? I don't know, Congresswoman, why not? Yeah, I have to disagree. I mean, it was a question. It was a question. Uh, well, OK, but why isn't Pelosi plowing through the whole list? Because we have to get the Senate to go along. And we had an amazing ceremony on the White House lawn to get signed into law, the Respect for Marriage Act that started in the House. And, you know, the Senate took a while, but we finally got it through there. This is the concern going forward when we're going to have to rely upon the Senate for everything to get moving over the next two years. But we also have taken up some things. I mean, just just yesterday, we passed the Puerto Rico bill that provides a template for moving forward to end the status quo, which isn't working for anyone. So it sets a date to have a plebiscite and, and that kind of thing. And that was bipartisan coming together. Now, the Senate's probably not going to take it up, but it lays down a marker. And so I think we have continued to move forward. And certainly my colleague, uh, Ed Perlmutter, is working every conceivable angle to try to get the Safe Banking Act through his passion project. And people are putting things into the omnibus spending bill. I'm hearing it's just there's just not enough hours in the lame duck period, basically. Well, there's not enough votes. And the Senate. In the Senate. Yeah, there's not enough votes. <laughs> but sometimes you're putting down a marker, mm -hmm. votes or no votes. The House has done its job both 
over these two years, both in actual legislating. I mean, it's one of the most extraordinary legislative sessions if you look at what was done on COVID relief, on guns, now on defensive marriage, on um, infrastructure, the infrastructure. <laughs> it goes on and on and on. Yeah. Infrastructure week. <laughs> yes. Infrastructure decade now. While still being responsible and keeping the government open as against right. terrorist tactics on the other side. All true. This has been a throwback to another era of effectiveness, but there also have been a lot of bills that were passed in the House that everyone knew wouldn't make it through the Senate. But you establish a standard for future generations. And Harry, as you know, there's very important stuff besides the actual spending. The political energy, the bicameral political energy has Mm -hmm. been used to move other critical things in this omnibus. I would just say I wouldn't count out the Electoral Count Act. Yeah. I mean, that seems to have some legs. Can you elaborate, please? Well, I mean, we're hearing it may be attached to the omnibus. It's certainly something that serious legislators and patriots understand is something we need to address while we can. So it seems as though that is something that could move forward. And I'd look forward to that happening. I wish we'd been able to get more across including the Voting Rights Act and that kind of thing, because traditionally those were bipartisan and it's really only election denialism and yeah. and the Trump fever that have kept them from being reauthorized or, or, you know, strengthening our democracy as opposed to trying to rip it down. That has a real shot in the Senate, but what are you hearing about that one? Because uh, like, that won't be bipartisan, right? The Electoral Count Act. Well, technically... It probably will be, right? Because yeah. Liz Cheney will vote for it. Adam Kinzinger will vote for right. it. But yeah. like, you know, Republicans aren't like embracing them as like, yeah, they're one of ours. It's bipartisan in right. nature. But like. So the odds of that one are pretty good, you're hearing? or Definitely, especially if they tuck it in the omnibus, right? It's like just kind of part and parcel. But even when the Electoral Count Act was first brought up over the summer when I was having these conversations, obviously we saw the House bill from Lofgren and Cheney, and then Klobuchar and others, Collins, Manchin, everyone on the Senate side had been negotiating their own. There's some differences, but at the end of the day, it does the basic stuff, right? Like the vice president can't overturn election results unilaterally. Like the basic things that we watched exploited and the January 6th committee has spent so much time on, those are the things that this will then fix. So yeah, if this gets in the Omni, I do think it'll be bipartisan. Correct. The current Senate bill that will be in the omnibus and I think will pass, is much better than the original Uh Senate version that I testified about in the Senate. It's improved. It's not as good as the House version. I agree. (laughs) And Cheney and Lofgren are not happy about it. They sent a very cranky letter enumerating (laughs) some of the flaws a couple days ago. But in the end of the day, The Senate bill has improved, and there is an overwhelming bipartisan consensus for it. It's more evidence of what's been effective in this session of Congress. You got a lot of Republicans to vote for it in the Senate. They made some improvements. They've been pretty implacable in refusing to accept the House bill. It's a pity, but that's Washington deal-making for you. It's time now for our sidebar feature, in which we ask a prominent person from another field to explain an important legal concept in the news. The concept today is the appalling rise in anti-Semitic episodes in this country in recent months and the potential for a federal response. 
and to explain it to us, talk about a prominent person from another field. It's my distinct honor and high privilege, as they say at the State of the Union, to introduce Rob Reiner, an actor and filmmaker best known, of course, for his role in the sitcom All in the Family as Michael Meathead Stivic for which he earned two Primetime Emmy Awards, but that was many moons ago. Since then, he's become the Oscar and Golden Globe-nominated director behind a raft of great movies, including Stand By Me, When Harry Met Sally, A Few Good Men, The Princess Bride, and the immortal mockumentary This Is Spinal Tap. As an actor, he's continued to appear on screen in many of his own films and others. He is also deeply involved in California and national politics, and he co-founded the American Foundation for Equal Rights, which initiated the court challenge against California Prop 8 dealing with same-sex marriage. So I give you Rob Reiner explaining the recent surge in anti-Semitic episodes. The recent repugnant expressions of anti-Semitism by Trump dinner guests Kanye West and Nick Fuentes, as well as Brooklyn Nets star Kyrie Irving, occurred against the backdrop of an upsurge in anti-Semitic incidents in the United States. In 2001, there were more than 2,700 acts of anti-Semitic assault, vandalism, and harassment, a 34% increase from 2020. That's an average of more than seven incidents per day, making it the worst year on record since the Anti-Defamation League began compiling this data in 1979. And those numbers don't express the gravity of the worst kind of incidents, like the murders of 11 worshipers at Pittsburgh's Tree of Life Synagogue in 2018. Now, during the Trump era, right-wing hate groups have proliferated dramatically on social media. In October, Kanye West's bizarre tweets about going DEFCON 5 on Jewish people led to an anti-Semitic hate group hanging a banner over a Los Angeles freeway that read, Kanye is right about the Jews. The urgency for a strong government response to rising anti-Semitism is critical. So last week, at the urging of a bipartisan group of more than 100 Senate and House members, President Biden announced the creation of an interagency task force headed by the Domestic Policy Council and the National Security Council to create a whole-of-government approach to threats and violence against Jewish communities. Now, we know that the government alone can't magically eradicate age-old hatred and scapegoating of Jews. But by leveraging all tools of the federal government and sharing best practices with state and city governments and stakeholders like the ADL, we can hold anti-Semitic people and groups legally accountable. For Talking Feds, this is Rob Reiner. Thank you very much, Rob Reiner, for explaining that disheartening recent surge in anti-Semitic incidents in the United States. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thanks, Harry. 
In today's Spirited Debate, we start with two of our absolute favorite things, dessert and wine, and combine them into one delicious topic, dessert wines. What are they exactly, and how are they made? Grab a fork and a glass, and let's dig into this sweet subject matter. Dessert wines are just as you'd hope they'd be, sweet wines that are typically served after a meal. Sometimes they're served with a dessert, and sometimes they're served as dessert. And then there are those times in between. The smoothness and lack of acidity make for a pleasant and easygoing taste that pairs perfectly with relaxation. I reach for dessert wines when I'm craving something sweet to enjoy while unwinding in the evening or after a big meal. To make a sweet dessert wine, the fermentation process is halted just prior to the yeast converting all the sugar to alcohol. Interrupting the fermentation ensures that there is sugar remaining in the wine, which gives us that sweetness we crave. But the amount of sweetness varies from wine to wine, and there's no shortage of options. Just pop into Total Wine & More, and you'll see many, many varieties, from ports to ice wines to Sautern and to Hungarian Tokai. Dessert wines come in both still and sparkling, too. They're also made from both red and white grapes. And they can be served chilled in a small glass or room temperature, proving that really, when it comes to dessert wines, anything goes. Hungry? Thirsty? Maybe a little of both? Stop into your local Total Wine to check out our large selection of dessert wines, and feel free to chat with a helpful guide for a recommendation. Cheers! Thanks to our friends at Total Wine and More for today's A Spirited Debate. All right, from sausage then to crime... We've got it all on Talking Feds. Let, so let's... Uh, Hell of a segue. Yeah, yeah exactly. You, you mentioned the January 6th committee. So, you know, between its closing sprint and the sort of hit-the-ground-running investigative approach of DOJ Special Counsel Jack Smith, the pace of the former president's legal troubles, I mean the pace, seems to be accelerating. So criminal referrals are coming five core people named. Let's see if I have my referral bingo card in play, but Eastman, Clark, Giuliani, Meadows, and El Capitan in the center. Let me start here because every, you, we all do TV and every single time I faced, uh, I'm sure you have two, a half a dozen versions of the question, will this really move DOJ? Will this make Merrick Garland have to bring charges? Let's just stipulate the answer to that is no. DOJ will exercise independent judgment. And so the follow-up question is, does that make the referrals in some way an empty or even inappropriate gesture? No. No. (laughs) No, I don't think so. I mean, just by the same token that once um, McCarthy and, and Trump essentially blocked having an independent commission, there was a lot of argument that, well, you know, if it's just going to be in the House and it's just going to be run by the Democrats, then what's the point of ever doing it? Well, we've seen the point. They've uncovered a ton of stuff and there needs to be a finale to it. There's going to be a report, which I'm really looking forward to. That's going to, I guess, officially be published on Wednesday, even though the meeting is on Monday. And so people will be able to see it for themselves. But Part of finishing the job, I think, is saying in our judgment, what we've seen dictates that we do this for the country. And is that the audience basically here? Not the DOJ, but the country? Harry, you're short selling the power. It's a uh, question. Of, of these, of these. <laughs> no, it, it was also when you were setting the premise. DOJ, both of us know Merrick. He... Jack Smith and others at DOJ would not be influenced at all by a mere statement charge. 
We know already that DOJ made a U-turn because of the Cassidy Hutchinson testimony. The committee has not done things in a political way. They've done it in a substantive and a prosecutorial way. They have amassed a trove of evidence. If they accompany that with serious legal analysis, applying the law to the facts, that will be read on the merits as a factual and legal presentation. And if it's persuasive, uh, it'll weigh in. These are very tough cases of the criminal risk that Trump is facing now. Mar-a-Lago, much easier case. There's 100 plus smoking guns in that case. The Georgia criminal case, which I think is gonna move soon against Trump, there is that smoking gun tape of him. Gotta love that. There's no smoking gun in this. This is election denial gone criminal to its logical extreme by Trump and his cronies. You have to accumulate a lot of evidence. You have to do incisive legal analysis. In a case that is hard, where it's on the bubble, I think that can help persuade on the merits, can help persuade DOJ. And also they're gonna have a lot of explaining to do if they don't charge. And that's a good thing that they feel that pressure. So I think because of the uniqueness of the way the committee has done it, very, very powerful. Well, not to be like the usual journalist, but like the transparency here is so critically important. And that's not what you usually get out of DOJ. So the fact that we've been able to watch chapter by chapter, and I say that now because the eight chapters that we're probably going to get on Wednesday probably track pretty closely to the several themes that we saw in each hearing this summer. The fact that we know each of the different points that they laid out where a lot of the evidence was that they thought would rise to the public level. I'm really interested in reading the appendices, seeing what Mm -hmm. information we get in the transcripts. I think all of us nerds who have followed this so closely are like, let me dig into that, please. But I also think that it does allow, even if DOJ makes its own decision on the merits, the public can now say that didn't feel like the right decision not to prosecute there. And we already know that this committee, even if them sending referrals is just like, a nice Dear Santa letter that doesn't actually go anywhere tangibly, we know that they had a real stamp and a real mark on what the work of the DOJ has been. So we know the blueprint now in a way that we don't often know about these kinds of cases. And I think that's really great for the public. I think that there's two points there that have been really important. Number one is reminding us of the big picture and tying it all together. Because even as they were doing the earlier hearings, it's like, oh, I remember that when it happened, but I didn't realize how it all tied together. So they've performed that function really well. And then I know that a big commitment of the members is that they want this to be transparent. They're going to put it all out there, both so that people can judge themselves and so that it can't be buried by, you know, another administration. And also so Republicans can't say, oh, look what you didn't do. But yes, look, obviously the information that they've developed will, of course, be valuable as information is. And I agree even the analysis, but DOJ will replicate it. I guess the bigger point, and maybe you would call my question somewhat rhetorical, is that the value of this shouldn't be judged by its probability of nudging or shoving DOJ in that direction. There are elected representatives. They perform this indispensable 
function of a compendium of a record of one of the two, three, or the most uh, harrowing challenges to democracy in the country's history. And the word I like that you used, Norm, was accompanying. This is a companion piece in a sense. It would almost be discordant if they didn't follow through. And they, they're lawmakers, they're lawyers, they're prosecutors, their judgment matters. Something else I really like about it, too. The day after, there's going to be these five pictures. And Trump, of course, but the evidence they've gathered, I'm thinking especially of the Meadows text that came out in the last week, really push away from this narrative of a mad king in the center doing all these things. It was a conspiracy. It was concerted. And the all the president's men aspect of Eastman, Clark, Giuliani, and especially Mark Meadows, who really has skated so far, I think is a huge national service, the same way the actual convictions of Haldeman, Ehrlichman, and the like were in Watergate. So bringing that to the fore and calling it what it is, a crime, is just a a very big and, and to my mind, completely appropriate public service, notwithstanding its impact on the DOJ. I guess those are where my cards are. As I've done analysis independently, we did a big 200-page Brookings scene setter. And And an uh, excellent one, I might add. Where we went through crime by crime and person by person, the evidence we knew. And then we did a running analysis at Just Security, the criminal evidence tracker. If I put myself in the prosecutor's chair, obviously Trump's going to be on the short list. I wouldn't assume, Harry, I'm not as confident as you are that I can predict who else is going to be on there. I've done big complaints myself against Eastman and Clark. Meadows has complicated things by refusing to cooperate, so we don't have all the evidence with Meadows. You know, we'll see where we land with him. Then there's other people. You know, I would argue that Cleta Mitchell is an even more important part, the lawyer who put together the plan to overthrow the government. Giuliani, that guy's a uh, loose cannon. Cleta Mitchell is a very shrewd operator. And so I'm waiting to see. I'm reserving. I'm less confident that you are than to predict names. Look, fair enough. But there could be other kinds of referrals too, right? Chairman Thompson said this to me the other day. Ethics to the Bar Association. Yes. Let's stick with that. First, on your point, Norm, the only thing I'm going on, and this is pretty uh, crass kind of Kremlinology almost, is that they've seen so harmonious. First, the four who are handling it are really strong voices, Lofgren, Schiff, Raskin, and Cheney. And just, we haven't heard any murmurs of sort of dissent within there, but it's a very good point that you're making. But what about that, Ali? These other referrals, they say, you know, four or five different kinds. What do you make of those and, you know, how significant? Yeah, well, criminal are the ones that we immediately Mm -hmm. jump to to say, you know, who are these people going to be? And certainly in the Eastman instance, for example, we've seen judges intimate that there was criminal activity there already, right? So to me, that seems an obvious name to put on that list, though I have, you know, it's hard to have confidence about any of these things because you just don't know what the committee is ultimately going to do, though they are probably all going to do it unanimously because that's the way that they've moved forward the whole time. 
But then you have these Republican lawmakers who have completely ignored their subpoenas, and those could be ethics referrals within the House. I think that's going to be an important precedent when you consider the fact that they're now in the subpoenaing position and they want people to come before them for their subpoenas. So Democrats have to figure out the precedent that they're about to set here because they could be on the receiving end of them soon. And I remember even when they were voting on the Bannon criminal contempt referral and, and others around that time, Many Republican lawmakers said to me the reason that they wanted to see those enforced was because they wanted their own subpoenas respected. So especially when you consider that Kevin McCarthy is among those, that he's leading this conference, I think that's a really important precedent for those of us who work in Congress, who cover Congress, who, who like to see the way this place functions, what the norms are. I think that's going to be really important. And then, of course, for some of the lawyers involved, for people who did unethical or even illegal things, those referrals could be important, too. Congresswoman, two-part question. Why is the Ethics Committee considered such an ineffective remedy for the five members who were especially uncooperative? And by the way, the cache of Meadows texts, I guess we'll all see them, but man, they are eyebrow-raising for not just five, but 34 different members. Tell us a little bit about the Ethics Committee and why it's considered so feckless, and two, any thoughts about what you would recommend should happen to these five members? The Ethics Committee really stands in contradiction to most of what happens in Congress. You have to sit in judgment upon your peers who you have to try to get along with in order to get anything done. It's also one of the few committees that I think, I'm not on ethics, but I believe has equal numbers from each side. Yep, it does. Supposedly to be fair, but then it also allows for blocking of action. So We've seen it over the last couple of years when you've had members engage in really egregious conduct like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who was advocating violence against other members and against Biden and such. All we could do is use the majority power to try to remove her from committees because there was no chance in hell that we were going to be able to get a two-thirds vote to remove her from Congress. So doesn't have a lot of teeth unless there's kind of universal condemnation. It seems pretty difficult to get it to move. They haven't set the table for a contempt referral. Mm -hmm. So is that pretty much all there is? It's that or nothing? Well, it also circles back to what we were talking, what I think Allie was talking about before, which is one of the reasons it has the equal membership is you don't want one party using it for purely political reasons and, and just going after the other side. It's going no place in the ethics committee unless DOJ comes up with additional evidence, which they may do. They've seized the phone of Scott Perry. So keep an eye out on him. As far as I know, he's he's the only one of this gang of five who's got that warning sign, Harry. But he's got real involvement. He's not just mm -hmm. not cooperating. He's the guy who ushers in Jeff Clark. Yeah. Depending how that evolves, that could turn into something real in the ethics committee. He may have bigger problems than the House Ethics yeah. Committee. And they don't have the same problem the Congresswoman averted to. DOJ loves charging Congress members. Yeah. Well, but it, it, as a member from Pennsylvania, and, and yeah. Perry's from Pennsylvania, we've kind of had our eye on this. I mean, the, the Senate Judiciary Committee recommended that he be investigated by the January 6th committee because of his deep involvement, really going very far to trying to do the fake electors and, and doing the introductions of Jeff Clark to Trump and and really advocating to overturn the Department of Justice. So, yeah, that's one I think we should watch. What about that as a closeout question to all of you? Does the Senate 
pick any of this up after the new gang led by whomever comes to town. Is this the end of the road for all the January 6th stuff, or will there be attempts to kind of counteract whatever happens in the House? Any thoughts? They're not talking about it yet, but I wouldn't be shocked. Yeah. I think that's right. It's been a snowball with respect to developing the evidence, really exposing what happened. Everybody suspected, but there weren't hard facts. I think the report that comes out next week could play a role in that. So it's TBD. And Norm, you're very attuned to individual senators and the like. If there is that kind of charge, who might lead it? Because I do think there's basically institutional reticence in the Senate to do that sort of thing, not to mention the fine divide. I think the Senate is unlikely to bring the same kind of vigor to the matter, in part because there is a grand culmination that's happening now, a passing of the torch, Harry, to federal prosecutors in these other forms of referral to bar authorities, uh, for the lawyers, campaign finance regulators, and who knows what else will be in the actual report. Surely it'll say something about the Georgia prosecutions passing the torch to Georgia, which I think the new year is going to bring charges in Georgia. You mean like January or you mean sometime in 2023? I think pretty early in the new year, charges are likely. I won't predict the date. I won't say it's 100 percent. But I'll just add, you followed it more closely than anyone. So, Well, thank you. And you've kibitzed with me more closely (laughs) than any other kibitzer in my life. So High praise. High praise for normalizing. (laughs) So, but you have to consider that the way the world looks to the Senate as they decide, okay, are we going to do the, you know, the good version of the Hunter laptop, which will be look, it will be looked at as tit for tat, right? They're going to say, oh, Fannie Willis is prosecuting him, soon to be followed by special counsel Jack Smith prosecuting, at least on the Mar-a-Lago documents, then some decision on these election denial crimes. Plus, there's going to be a civil death penalty corporate death penalty case that the New York AG is going to be doing in 2023. That's set for trial. In that landscape, given the Senate's general reticence and slowness and states person-like bias, I just don't see it. Now, finally, to answer your question, there will probably be some mild activity, and it could either be led on a committee basis, perhaps, in Senate Judiciary, um, that would be Durbin. He's got a White House and a bunch of other powerhouses on there. Klobuchar, yeah. Bl- Blumenthal, mm-hmm. Klobuchar. Or, you know, you could have a senator on White House is among the most vigorous in this regard. Klobuchar, very good also. She's been very good in steering the Electoral Count Reform Act. And she's very bipartisan, Klobuchar. The way she brought along blunt her ranking member yeah. and the others on ECRA has has just been masterful. But I think the theater of operations is going to move outside of Congress on the election denial crimes and all the other alleged crimes, which are substantial. I feel like the only thing that goes Senate side is what Ways and Means has with Trump's taxes, yes. right? Like we'll know what Richie Neal does soon, mm. but the Senate could easily pick that one up. That's the one where, like, if I had to put a list, I think that would be top of the list for anything that the Senate picks up 
Trump-related E from the House. It's a good point. And in some ways, look, the biggest factor is the list itself. You itemized it somewhat, Norm. There's the sort of, you know, sound and smell of Teflon being scraped off from many sides all over town. The Teflon is gone. Right. DeSantis is the front runner for the Republican GOP nomination. Now, Ali, you really see what pod hijacking looks like. (laughs) We really should be talking about the fact that Ron DeSantis, I wrote a column for CNN Opinion on this months ago, Ron DeSantis is just as big a threat to the rule of law as Donald Trump. He leaves a trail of decisions that he violated the Constitution behind him. Those are civil and constitutional violations. He embarked on a completely unlawful persecution. His state told Florida voters, returning voters, former felons, that they could vote. Then he started arresting them for pure show. It's totally cynical. It's as revolting as Trump. He fired Andrew Warren, a state prosecutor, voted in for articulating his opinions about abortion, and he engaged in human trafficking. I believe there's a criminal investigation going on, and there should be, of his sending those migrants from Texas. Why is he even sending migrants from Texas? All right, I'm a willing hostage here with one (laughs) minute to go. We were gonna, the talking five was gonna be who you would give a Trump NFT card as a stocking Duffer, but with your leave, let's uh, switch it to five words or fewer. DeSantis versus Trump. Discuss. Five words or fewer? Five words or fewer. I used all the words. But you could just say, I agree with Norm Eisen, but yeah. I would say, kill me now. (laughs) (laughs) And I have two left. Exactly. (laughs) Ali, man, that's a tough act to follow. God, I don't... Front runner in 2022, that's the the four words, fine. But like, you don't want to be the front runner in 2022. You don't even want to be the front runner in early 2023. So, you know, this is probably where I'm going next, right? Like back on the campaign trail. So send me your bourbon. I don't know. It's going to be a really long campaign. Yeah. (laughs) There you go. Those are my five words. Send me your bourbon. (laughs) And I'll go with consummate Cretan agree, but boring. We are unfortunately out of time. Thank you so much to Allie, Norm, and Congresswoman Scanlon. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can also now subscribe to us on our YouTube channel, where we are posting full episodes, talking books, and lots of bonus video content. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod, and you can also join our Patreon at patreon.com TalkingFeds, where we post weekly discussions and monthly live Q&A sessions with me exclusively for supporters. This past week, we posted a conversation with Dan Alonzo about the renewed investigation into Trump from the Manhattan DA's office. Talking Feds is a completely independent production. You may notice it's not larded up with commercials like so many other law and politics podcasts are. 
So if you like the work we do and the spirit moves you to support the show, joining our Patreon is the best way to do it. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com, whether it's for Talking 5 or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in, and don't worry, as long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Olivia Henriksen. Sound engineering by Matt McArdle. Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers. Production assistance by Laurel Feldner, David Littman, Emma Maynard, and Kalena Tano. Thanks very much to Rob Reiner for explaining the recent surge in anti-Semitic episodes and the potential federal response. Our gratitude goes, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Dolito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later.